The Bible, the Word of God, a living manuscript that gives life and brings light. The truth found in its pages serves as our guide when we're lost, our refuge in times of trouble, conviction in moments of weaknesses, courage and wisdom in the face of life circumstances, whatever they are. Listen, reading scripture isn't about fulfilling an obligation. It's not something to be checked off a to-do list. It's about spending time daily growing closer to the heart of God. As we do this, we get exactly what we need for our moments right now. This is our daily step. Well, good morning. This, this thing's on. Hi, how are you today? I'm on this latter half of Williamson County spring break. I'm glad that you guys are here. My name is Nick Allen. I'm the family and children's pastor here at Rolling Hills, and it's always a privilege. I never tire of saying um, how grateful I am for these opportunities to step into the multi-generational room, the body of Christ, um, to open his word and to unpack what it says for us as believers living centuries away from this original audience and, and what it still might in its sovereignty and its perfection and in its joy might say to us. Um, and so today, we're in the second installment of, of a daily step sermon at Rolling Hills. Now, lots of times when you come here, um, you find yourself in, in the middle of a series. You're engaged in a portion of like a four-week or a six-week or even longer, like eight to ten weeks, um, where something uh, around a consecutive theme is building upon itself each week. Um, last week and this week are actually just related to our, our daily Bible readings as a church. Um, now, if you're engaged in a daily step reading, then today you've probably already gone through Psalm chapter 42, which is where we're going to land this morning. Um, if you're not engaged in the daily step reading, do not be discouraged. You are not 372 days behind. You can actually just jump in at any time. And what we trust about the living and the active and the breathing word of God is that wherever we pick it up, whenever we pick it up, and why ever we pick it up, it matters. Today is as good of a place to start with a daily Bible reading plan as any other day. Um, a really smart, influential pastor that I like a whole lot named R.C. Sproul, um, who I'm totally envious of his name because he just goes by initials, which I think is really cool, and I've often tried to think about doing that in my own life, um, but I don't think it would work as well. It stands for Robert Charles, um, and also my favorite cola when I was a kid, and I was allowed to ride my bike by myself to the 7-Eleven and get baseball cards in Big League Chew, R.C. Um, you know, he wrote this. It's uh, in a book called Five Things Every Christian Needs to Know. He wrote... It is fashionable in some academic circles to exercise scholarly criticism of the Bible. In doing so, scholars place themselves above the Bible and seek to correct it. If indeed the Bible is the word of God, nothing could be more arrogant. It is God who corrects us. We don't correct him. We do not stand over God, but under him. He's expounding on words that we learn from the Apostle Paul who writes to a young kid named Timothy when he says, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Like the point of scripture is that you and I would be equipped for every good work. And the way that God chooses to do this is to reveal himself through his word so that we might be taught and rebuked and corrected and trained to do the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do because as believers in Jesus Christ, that's why we're still here. Otherwise, we would have been raptured into heaven the moment that we trusted Christ for salvation to spend all eternity praising him with angels and not left here to deal with the fallen effects of a rotten world. No, we're given the gifts of God so that we can 
follow his will and, and be salt and light within it. Moses told the Israelites, and Jesus quoted this later on when he was having a conversation with the devil, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You and I have been given words that came from the mouth of God. Oh, may we elevate them and may we respond to them in a way that is like respectful and, and holy and right. We need God. We need him so desperately. And our access point to him is through his word. It's not just how we know about him. It's how we know him. And so with Daily Step, you're invited into the Word of God, not just to be read as a devotional, but as a reflection of the devotion that you have to Him. If you check out the Daily Step blog, and this portion is in your notes this morning, we unpack a daily passage, one of the two, the Old Testament or the New Testament passage, every single day, with a simple format that you can use in your own devotional life too. The first is to summarize the passage. And that's just helping you answer the question, what does the text say? The second portion is that you would translate it. Um, and not like into a different language, which we often think of when we talk about biblical translations, like from Greek to Hebrew, or from Hebrew to Greek, or to English, which would be really nice, um, or translations. I'm asked all the time by parents and grandparents at Rolling Hills, like, what's the best Bible translation for my kids when we get one? And I'm happy to have those discussions, but those are just versions of the actual translation, which is Greek or Hebrew words of God to us. But when we translate it, we're actually just figuring out the question, what does this mean? What does this passage mean? Like, what did it mean to the original audience, and what does it mean today? To evaluate the passages to answer the question, how does this passage of Scripture impact my life? Like, how does this apply to me today? And a lot of times when we approach Scripture, we go to that question first, trying to figure out, well, how does this apply to my life? And going to that question first without answering the other two questions, like, what does the text actually say, and what did it mean to the original audience in its specific context is kind of, you know, skipping to the end of a movie before you watch the beginning. Like, it's really important to, to go through those steps in order, and you get to that evaluation point, and you want to know, what is it that God is specifically saying to me today? And how does this passage impact my life? And then finally, and maybe most importantly, you pray. It's not a portion that can be forgotten. It's the opportunity to ask God to do what he already promises to do in his word. That we say to him, may, may, may I be drawn closer to you, God, because of your word for me today. And so today, as a part of our daily step study, we encounter Psalm chapter 42. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there with me this morning. Now, if I was in kids' ministry, I would shout out a, a, a follow-up question by saying to the kids, hey, is Psalms in the Old Testament or the New Testament? And one really bold kid up front who may or may not know the answer could shout the wrong one and still be confident at the end, and that would be okay. Um, but then a more quiet, soft-spoken child who actually knows the answer would say, Old Testament. Um, and I would give them like a verbal high five, and then we would begin reading. And you see what I did there was I actually gave you a moment to find Psalm 42. So you should be there and ready to read with me these words together. First one says, as a deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, God. Now, if you want to unpack the context of that and say, what does the passage say? It says that there are sometimes seasons of drought. And when we talk about seasons of drought, this is a metaphor that people of that day would have understand really well because they went through seasons of drought. They went through seasons of famine. Their ancestors went through seasons of famine. They, they had to travel long distances to get to water. Their towns and their ecosystem were, were built around places where you could get fresh water because it was so important to the life of the community. So to say, as a deer, a woodland creature, longs for streams of water, so I long for you, God. Like the way to describe the way that I feel about the Lord should be described by something that's desperate. 
as a deer is desperate for water, so may we be desperate for God. He says in verse two, I thirst for God, the living God. And that's really important because there were false God worships all over the place during this day and time. Like they were worshiping false idols every single place that you turn. And the Old Testament is full of examples through scripture where we find the people really tempted to go and worship false idols. And so let's be really clear that today we're thirsting for God, but not just any God. We're thirsting for the living God. And then comes the question, when can I come and appear before God? Oh, we're taking a turn because it gets real sad. My tears have been my food day and night. While all day long people say to me, where is your God? I remember this as I pour out my heart, how I walked with many, leading the festive procession to the house of God with joyful and thankful shouts. The psalmist is remembering the moments of worship where they traveled to Jerusalem with big herds of people and they were really excited and they were shouting praises to God and they were remembering all the great things that God had done for them because they loved temple worship. And sometimes we give temple worship a really bad rap because, well, Honestly, it kind of deserved it. There were so many bad perversions of it throughout the Old Testament, and much of what you read in the prophets, like minor prophets and, well, major prophets, and especially the minor prophets, is how, how corrupt the temple worship system had become. And so you and I sit back and we think, oh, the temple worship system was really bad, but in its institution given by God, it was meant to be a place where they could be drawn into his presence to know him better and to love him more. And this psalmist writes with joy what it meant to, to travel with the community of believers and to gather into the prescribed place of, of worship of the Lord and, and to joyfully shout all the great things that, he, you know, it's a joy to come together to worship. That's why Hebrews says we're not supposed to forsake it. You and I, I actually like being with you guys on Sunday mornings. I like when I'm able to steal away from kids ministry and, and come in here and sit with my wife over in this section during the second service as, as we sing songs together and as I open my Bible or, you know, turn on my Bible. And read words of scripture and hear it as a community. Well, this psalmist longs for that and remembers with fondness what it was like to worship God. And so then he asks the questions, well, if I love that so much and if I love you so much and if I want you so much, why am I so depressed? Why this turmoil within me? That's a hard question for believers to ask. We have the joy of the resurrected Christ living inside of us, so why should we be sad? What right do we have to be downcast? And then we punch ourselves in the stomach and say, I shouldn't feel this way. It shouldn't be hard for me to get out of bed in the morning. I shouldn't be sad. I shouldn't have to put on my fake smile. Like, why do I feel this way? And then he musters up the strength in verse five. He says, put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my savior and God. In the middle of the depression, in the middle of the turmoil, I'm gonna put my hope there and I'm still gonna praise him. He says, I am deeply depressed. And so what does he do? Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and the peaks of Hermon and the Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your billows have swept over me. The Lord will send his faithful love by day. His song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about in sorrow because of the enemy's oppression? My adversaries, they taunt me as if crushing my bones while all day long they say to me, where is your God? And I know that there are moments in our lives when we claim and profess Christ and then we do something wrong like a sin or we struggle with something deep like depression and people might say to us, well, you just need to trust God more or you just need to pray more or, well, if you believe in this God, then why isn't he helping you? And sometimes it's the attacks of enemies outside the walls, but sometimes it's the attack of the enemy within looking at you and saying, okay, mirror, 
Why do I feel this way? I've got to snap out of it. God, where are you? In verse 11, he repeats, why am I so depressed? Why this turmoil within me? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. Uh-uh. Welcome to the first day of spring where we talked about a really sad passage of scripture. <laughs> for those of you who really like filling in blanks and for, for those of you especially who will come and tell me later on if I miss one, we're going to breeze through the rest of your notes today. And this is really an opportunity for you to be reminded that God will unpack scripture for you as you unpack scripture for yourself. And so to help understand the Psalms, one of the things that you have to get is that they were meant, many of them were meant to be sung as expressions of worship. They were meant to be set to music. I thought really long and hard about trying to sing this one to you today. I even thought it would be really fun to do like they did on that TV show, um, Whose Line Is It Anyway, where one of you guys would shout out a musical genre and then I would translate Psalm 42 into that, like rap um, or opera. But then I decided not to do that. And everyone here said thank you. The Hebrew name for the book of Psalms is Songs of Praise, which we kind of understand, but is also kind of ironic because many of the Psalms that were written, including the one that we're looking at today, were Psalms of lament or actually complaints to God. Not all of the Psalms were meant to be put to music, but we know from this one, it was written by the sons of Korah, who were the worship leaders in the community. So we can be confident that this one came with a chart. Some of you are really excited that I got all Nashville on you and I used the word chart to refer to like musical notes and how you should play them. Um, I just heard the band talking about that earlier and so that's how I knew that it was a word to use. (laughs) Psalms were meant to be expressions of worship and they were used in, in the community to tell God that they loved him and that they needed him. John Piper says that the Psalms of Lament are really important because they do two things for us. One, they remind us that the world has fallen and messed up and it's not great. And we need to be wise and aware and understand the nature of the world that we live in and how it's marred because of sin. It's because of sin that we recognize our need for God in the first place. And so these Psalms of Lament are great reminders for us that the world is not perfect and that it's messed up because of the sinful nature of the people who live in it. And second, the reason why these Psalms of Lament are more important is because they give us vocabulary words and permission to cry out to God and say, we need you. We are desperate. You got to help us out. Because sometimes in our prideful versions of Christianity, we might think that we are too good to beg of God or that we should be too good to need God. And the Psalms of Lament give us permission to tell God how we really feel, how ultimately in his knowledge he already knows that we feel desperate and in need and that the world's not right and we got to depend on him. There are a lot of matters that come to understanding any passage of scripture and they definitely apply to the Psalms. The first that you've got to dive into and grasp is the historical context of the Psalm. Like what is the historical context of the passage? What did it mean for that specific audience? And there are a lot of passages of scripture where you could assign a specific year, a specific date, a specific audience, a specific person, and a specific historical event that would drive that passage of scripture. Psalm 42 is not one of them. We don't know exactly when this psalm was set in the life of the king or the kingdom. And what we do know is that it was something really, really intense. And it was only aggravated by the presence of mockers. 
And the second thing that's really kind of important to understand any sort of biblical literature is the literary type of literature that it is and the devices that are employed. Psalms is considered um, poetic or wisdom literature. Um, it, it uses a lot of metaphors and a lot of word pictures to help us understand a deeper spiritual meaning. And you can't, like, a deer panting for water is not the same way that I pant for God. I'm not walking around on all fours going, <laughs> looking to lap something up. But the metaphor is clear that as a deer is desperate for a stream of flowing clean water, I'm desperate for the presence of God in my life. Psalm 42 is a lament. It's a, a dirge of a couple of stanzas and a chorus. Um, and Verse 42, 1 through 4, you get a verse, like a song. And in verse 5, you get the chorus. Well, in 6 through 10, you get another verse. And in 11, it repeats the chorus. And you can look at the way that it's written in a poetic nature, but understand that it meant something very specific to the audience that originally sung it. And the next thing to do is to look at the relationship between that specific passage and all the other passages around it. In this case, other psalms. Psalm 42 is actually connected to Psalm 43, and they were actually probably one song at one point, um, and read as one. Why? Psalm 43 doesn't have a title like all of the other psalms in this section. Um, it doesn't have an author named like all the other psalms in this section, so it was probably just a continuation of what you read in Psalm chapter 42. It also repeats the chorus. That same verse 5 and that same verse 11 is also in chapter 43, verse 5, so you really get 43, 1 through 4, another verse, and 43, 5, the final repeat of that same chorus, and it's a song that could be sung. There are matters that we need to apply when we want to understand the way that a Bible passage impacts us. And there's also matters that we need to understand and when we're trying to apply the truth. How do we apply the truth of God? This is the part that's really personal for us. You have to dive in and you have to reflect and you have to be honest with yourself and ask yourself tough questions about how does my life parallel this psalm? How do the core truths contained within it, how are they relevant for me today? And how does God intend for faithful believer like you and me to respond in light of what he's saying? There's space in your notes for you to jot down things that come to mind about the ways that Psalm chapter 42 might speak to you. How does your life parallel the psalmist? How does your life impacted by depression and struggle? How is your life characterized by a need for God? How is your life described by crying out for him? And how does God intend for us to respond as believers in Jesus after reading something like this? I struggle personally with psalms of lament. It's kind of a pendulum for me. Some of you may not know this, but I started my career in ministry um, outside the local church. I worked for the evangelism and church growth team of the North Carolina Baptist State Convention, which sounds way more professional than it actually is. Basically, a Baptist State Convention is a collection of churches that work together for ministry in the state. In North Carolina, there were 4,000 of them. And working on the evangelism and church growth team, I basically did youth camps. And, and it was a lot of fun. And it was uh, during that time in my life, my early 20s, where I read a manual from a seminary professor called Servanthood Evangelism. And that's nothing that we're talking about today. So to dive into that would take me way far off the rabbit trail and I wouldn't be able to recover. So I won't even tell you what that meant to me. But I will say that it caused me and a couple of my other buddies and mentors in ministry to evaluate what we were doing and to start an agency that would send youth ministry teams to cities in the Northeast to work with church planters to help reach their communities. And so we partnered with the North American Mission Board as strategic focused city partners to take youth groups to cities. And so 10 months out of the year, I spent planning these trips and going around and speaking to youth groups and pastors about why they should come. And then two months out of the year, I was actually on the ground in New York and Boston and Philadelphia, these big major cities in the Northeast where church planters were trying to get new works started. 
And what I found myself after two years of doing that was that I really liked the two months of my job way more than I liked the 10 months of my job. And I found myself coveting the discipleship relationships that these youth pastors had with their teams and volunteers and students and parents. And so I jumped ship and went to work for the local church in Charlotte. I became a youth pastor. I learned something pretty profound about youth of the early 2000s, um, and that is that they complained a lot. Not at all like the teenagers of today who don't complain at all. Um, I quickly as a youth pastor, I had to cultivate a list of like, rules and expectations, specifically when we went on trips and stuff. And one of those was, um, you are not Jesus, you were not falsely accused, tried and convicted for egregious crimes, you were not subsequently sentenced to die a cruel death on the cross for the sins of a fallen world, therefore you have no reason to complain. <laughs> Much of that statement has governed a great deal of my thought, theology in life, perhaps a bit too much. You see, I... I'm a guy who feels the need to clean my plate because there's starving kids in Nigeria. And I feel ashamed throwing things away that others might be able to treasure and use. I have a difficulty admitting my own tendency to be burdened by first world problems when I'm aware of bigger battles elsewhere in the world. And I feel a strong need to avoid anything in my life that looks like complaining for fear that I might be labeled a complainer. And you know, the, the odd thing about that statement is that this week of all weeks as I prepared to talk about this, the enemy in my life gave me more petty things to complain about than ever before. Here's what I know to be true. In this life, I will have problems. I will have problems in this life. The Christian life is not a problem-free, pain-free existence. Here's what I know to be true regarding those problems. There will always be some people's problems that are bigger, and there will always be some people's problems that are smaller. And if I focus on only how my problems are bigger than everyone else's, I become narcissistic and I can't see past the nose on my own face and I walk around like a top that Tina thinking, well, my problems are bigger than your problems. And I'm really rendered ineffective in the world. And if we're honest, we, we know people like that. And if I focus on how my problems are way smaller than other people's, then I'm tempted to brush them all under the rug and never deal with them because I've got to go focus on bigger things in the world. And then they just continue to build and render me ineffective because I'm not coping with any of the things that I'm dealing with in life, and you know people like that too. There is only one answer to struggle. Perspective. Why is the psalmist depressed? Because he forgot about God's goodness, or he felt that God had forgotten about him. What is it that he needed to remember? to couch all of those feelings of depression and anxiety and what he could recall about the goodness of God that's called perspective. And there's only one place that you are guaranteed to get it, and that's the Word of God. That's what the Psalms give us, perspective. That's what a daily step does in my life and yours, perspective. Susan and I, she's my wife, we got married in the year 2000, which makes me older than you think. <laughs> And over Christmas of 2003, we found out that we were going to have our first baby. Over New Year's, I did what good youth pastors did back then, which was to take all of your youth to Gatlinburg. Um, it was really just a favor to parents. Um, on the trip, Susan called me and, and told me that she had encountered a complication. The pregnancy was still really early, um, and the doctor told her to rest and to hope and that he would see her again on Monday. On January 2nd, 2004, I knelt on the balcony of a conference center in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and I begged God not to take that baby. 
but you know how you're supposed to pray, not my will, but yours be done? I sort of did that by saying, God, if you do, please let me be at home. I got home mid-afternoon on January 3rd, 2004, and later that evening, we lost our oldest child to miscarriage, but we were together, not miles apart. On one hand, we mourn that loss. Even today, years later, um, the child that we didn't meet. But then perspective happens. See, we later learned that that pregnancy was ectopic and that if it was carried much further, it would have caused complications for, um, that threatened both Susan's life and our ability to conceive other children. And in that moment, we learned that God was answering prayers that we didn't even know to pray. I could only say, God, get me home. And I testify about a faithful father who answers those prayers and who cares for his kids. I want you to hear me say that's not the worst problem that I've ever faced as a believer in Jesus Christ, but it's also not the least. Since that day, we had two kids, moved two states, went through a significant financial crisis because one of those moves was during the 2007 real estate crisis in our country, and we were trying to sell a house in order to accomplish that move, and it didn't. We lost another child to miscarriage and had a third who has pretty specialized needs that we're learning how to deal with every day, and God is in the middle of it very good to us. In this life, we will have problems. Some of them are big and some of them are small, but they're problems just the same. Right now, we're kind of settled into a series of problems called automotive issues. And the thing that I've learned about car trouble, I kind of wish that it was a little more about cars. It, it wasn't. It, I've actually learned more about me. You see, I'm the kind of believer that brushes that sort of thing under the rug because somehow I've determined that God has bigger things to deal with than me and my high mileage car. But just this year, through his word and, and, and through this daily step, God has reminded me that he's my father. And that before I'm a pastor who's called, to care, who's called to care for the bigger problems in this room and the bigger problems in the world, I'm actually just a kid who needs to grab the dorm room phone and, and call up dad and say, I don't know what to do. And he wants that relationship with me, and I desperately need it with him. It's easy to feel forgotten and alone over big things in our life. It's embarrassing to feel forgotten and alone over little things in our life. But we do, and we need to admit it. Because in both circumstances, big problems and little temporary issues what we need is the perspective of praising a God, still praising a God who is able to be there for us no matter what. Me failing to come to God with my little mundane problems is an indication that my God was too small. And because my God was too small, I needed to reserve all of his time for big issues in life and not bother him with my tiny problems and I'm relearning that my hope is in Christ, not just for salvation and eternity, for victory over sin, but it's also for day-to-day -day nuisances and temporary struggles. And God is passionately concerned about both because he's passionately concerned about people. He's passionately concerned about big depressing issues in the fallen world that you and I cannot comprehend. And he's also passionately concerned about the seasonally depressed moments in my life where I just feel sad and kind of burdened even by my own feelings. He is a God who desires to be Psalm 42, 5 for us. 
that we could put our hope in him, that we could still praise him as a savior and as a God because he can be trusted. And because his word is true, there's a pastor in South Carolina, he's kind of prominent. His name is Perry Noble. He's come under fire for lots of things. And one of which is his admitted battles with depression and anxiety and his use of antidepressant medications. He writes in a book called Overwhelmed that when we are begging God to change our circumstances, he most often responds by changing us. That's a one-word answer. Perspective. Our problems will always seem to us to be bigger than they actually are or smaller than they actually are. And the only way to see them for what they really are is perspective. And the only way to get that is in light of God's word telling us about a faithful father who can be trusted with our problems no matter their size. Psalm 42 demonstrates for us what it is like to cry out to God when we are in need. And when I gain that kind of perspective, I long like a thirsty woodland creature for nothing else but God. Go back to the very beginning of that passage. If your Bible has headings over chapters, it says, for the choir director, a maskil of the sons of Korah. That word maskil, it means a special skill or teaching psalm. There were 30 of them total, all meant to teach us something very important. That puts a new spin on things. What is it that Psalm 42 attempts to teach us? That in our darkest moments, the ones that we don't like, the ones that we don't think people of faith should actually have, the one we're embarrassed to admit, the ones we feel guilty for having, much less expressing, those are the moments when we need to praise God even more. Another brilliant guy by the name of John Stott, who also went by his middle initials, RW. Gosh, those initials. He gives us a lot of insight into how God uses his word to, to teach us. He says that, we must allow the word of God to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency, and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. That is the purpose of God's word, and that is the purpose of this daily step, that it would confront us, that it would disturb us, that it would undermine our complacency, that we would be completely overthrown, and that our patterns of thought and behavior would be completely wrecked and transformed for the glory of God in our lives into the image of Jesus. The goal of this word is that you and I would be more carved into the image of God's own son, Jesus. That somehow reading this would make us very different from the people we used to be in the world around us. This isn't some story book. It's not a fable or a fairy tale. It's not the next installment of ABC's Once Upon a Time where we're trying to figure out something dumb like how Snow White and Peter Pan are connected somehow. It's real. It's the word of our creator who is alive and wants to make us alive. All of it, start to finish, is a masculine. It's meant to teach us something about how powerful God is and how who we are supposed to be transformed in light of him. When we step back and when we look up and when we dive in, we gain a proper dose of perspective. Today, I want us to know that it is okay to cry out in anguish, that it is okay to cry out in desperation, that God is not intimidated by our fears, 
He doesn't struggle with our complaints. He doesn't fault us for our humanity. It's okay to cry out to him. It's okay to cry out to him with our big needs that we and everybody else around us cannot possibly understand. It's okay to cry out to him with our small needs, the ones that we feel really embarrassed about letting become big needs. He likes to be needed by us and for us to turn to him. And when we do, that is worship. Worship is a time for testimony and celebration. It's also a time for confession and forgiveness. It is a place for you and I to gather and remember God's goodness in the past, receive power from his word for the present, and to conceive hope that will make it okay for us to be in the future. This is a God that we trust. This is a God that we need. And this is a word that reminds us how to tell him, oh God, we need you. Would you pray with me? Holy God, in the middle of despair, you gave us Psalm 42.8. You told us that you will send faithful love by day. You told us that your song would be with us in the night. And so we make this our prayer to you, the God of life. Would you be with us in our time of struggle? Would you be real to us in our time of need? Would you let us know, God, that it's normal to have problems and that it's okay to need you? In fact, that's the only right response. May we be a people who are transformed by your word, God. May we be a people who wake up every day ready for our daily dose of perspective on who you are and who you want us to be. For my friends in this room, God, who are hurting and sad and lonely and who cannot comprehend why they have feelings of loss or loneliness or depression, God, I pray that you would hear their cries and that you would respond with strength. For the rest of us, God, who are just embarrassed by the silly little problems of life that we feel like we should be able to figure out on our own, God, may we come to you with boldness as kids who need their dad. That's the image in scripture we're most thankful for, God. When you described yourself as a father, because we need one. In the spirit of unity and of love and with an attitude of worship, God, we pronounce... Amen.